Hi there, and welcome to TMX Presents, the podcast. My name is Danny Lipkin, Managing Director of Global Innovation Sector at TSX and TSX Venture Exchange. On today's episode of TMX Presents, the podcast, we will be speaking with Jim Valsili, the retired chairman and CEO of Research in Motion, a technology company he scaled from idea to $20 billion in sales globally. Jim is the co-founder of the Council of Canadian Innovators and the Digital Governance Council, as well as founder of the Centre for International Governance, Innovation in Waterloo, the Centre for Digital Rights, the Balsilli School of International Affairs, and the Arctic Research Foundation. He currently chairs the boards of CCI, CIGI, Innovation Asset Collective, and co-chairs the Digital Governance Council. His awards include several honorary degrees, Mobile World Congress Lifetime Achievement Award, Canadian Business Hall of Fame, Time Magazine World's 100 Most Influential People, and three times Barron's List of World's Top CEOs. On today's podcast, we'll discuss with Jim a bit of his background and history, and also what he's been doing since his RIM days, and how he's been a forefront in leadership in the innovation economy in Canada. Jim, thank you very much for being on today's podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Danny. So obviously, we're a TSX podcast here. We have to start with where everybody knows you from at the TSX. And I think all 1800 of our employees know the name Jim Balsilli very well. So I thought, Jim, we could start off today by talking about your experience with RIM and taking it public on TSX in 1997. What was that like for you as a business person, a Canadian, an entrepreneur, and, and maybe share for listeners today kind of what that meant to you personally? Sure. And I think you have to take it in place and time. Back then, the internet was just emerging. And in the wireless world, paging was king. And cellular was starting to emerge. And wireless data was nowhere to be found. And we believed in wireless data, but we positioned it as two-way paging and we needed capital to grow. And so we did a vehicle back then, which was called a special warrant in May 96, and you commit to going public within 18 months. And so we did an IPO on the TSX in November 97, and it was quite a trial by fire for us. The IPO was successful, but within a very short period of time, Oracle had a big miss, long-term capital imploded, and so it was a winter for markets. Then we also had Comdev, who was a large shareholder on our board, selling shares to finance a satellite venture. And the big dogs in Motorola's and Nortel's and Nokia's were all talking about 3G right being right around the corner, and we were on this 2G data. So people thought, we bet on the wrong horse, we're going down, it's a tough time. And yeah, I would say the first year was a trial by fire, though we did get the capital to grow. And when you do an IPO, I very much saw it as a vehicle to sell shares. And you sell shares for primary or for secondary purposes. We needed capital to grow. 100% of our proceeds were primary. And we were deploying it for a business that we believed in. But right after we closed the IPO, the world was very, very turbulent. And then in September 98, everything changed and for the better. But that first 11 months was something that I didn't foresee. And I didn't know if it was normal or not, but 
here we go. <laughs> and as a tech entrepreneur, there wasn't a lot of tech IPOs in that day. What did it feel to be one of the bigger ones that had ever IPO'd on TSX at the time? You know, how did that feel to you personally as kind of a, an accomplishment at the time? Some people talk a lot about their public stock. I tried not to make it a point of attention in the company. It's a vehicle to secure capital, to create liquidity for your shares, originally primary, potentially secondary. It gets visible because it's marked to market every day, but you don't have the complexity of uh, complex shareholder investments where they want to control the company. So it's a two-sided thing. But for us, it was the right thing to do, and we got the capital we needed to grow. But as I said earlier, technology was just emerging. New forms of technology, the Netscape browser was just taken off. All of this dot-com stuff hadn't happened. We were at the absolute forefront of a lot of the wireless. In the digital realm, though, there was lots of hype in the big infrastructure players. So, yeah, it means that it's turbulent because do people really believe there's people get nervous, people get excited. The pools aren't that deep and experienced domestically, but they were there and they liked what we had to say. But as I say to everyone at RIM, and I've always said to the entrepreneurs at council, the only thing you can control is the inputs. So focus on the inputs and let the outcomes look after themselves. My view in this is we raised the capital and now we got to go to work and we got to perform on that capital for those that have trusted us. Another great tech company that you've been involved with that maybe people don't know as well is Magnet Forensics, also based out of Waterloo and a digital investigative software company that IPO'd on TSX in 2021. I'd love to hear your reflection just on how that IPO went from maybe an investor appetite perspective in Canada, how tech was perceived in 2021 versus the RIM BlackBerry IPO back in 1997. Sure. And there were three partners at Magnet. I was chair and there was Adam and Jad. And we took it public with no outside investors, no outside venture. And it was quite profitable. And I believe it was the only IPO through the next couple of years that went out that ended up being positive. It was up 150%. We did a merger with a company we we're trying to buy for $1.8 billion. And there's a lot of similarities between then and now. It's just... When you do it for the second time, you know what you're doing more clearly. You build investor interest through meetings there. Obviously, we had Angela Liberto as the COO and Senior VP of Finance who had taken RIM public. So he knew that and did multiple offerings cross-border. And then you build a syndicate. And these are very referential relationships. They're soft in the sense that how supportive are they? And so you build support up and down the organization, which is very, very important on this. And so the company had very good unit economics. You had a large addressable market. You had a moat of protection. So the fundamentals that you offer are very clear and the company performed into those. And so there was a lot of similarity. And then it was a turbulent market again through the changes in the interest rate structures, but this was a company, the only one in the 21 cohort that traded up and it was up 150%, but it's a tribute to a really good team who work really hard. And I just make sure people focus on the fundamentals and we have very proper framing of it, but the team's exceptional. And I think 12 of the 16 most senior people 
at Magdard are former RIM people. So it's a known group that knows how to work together and knows how to perform and knows how to grow globally. I enjoy working with them. I think they're wonderful and we're still together. It's a great story. And I'll also say, Jim, that we evaluate IPOs after a number of years. So we're still going to see that 2021 cohort actually do well long term. <laughs> we don't evaluate IPOs over a year or two. We say the value of going public is what you can create over five to 10 years, just like RIM and BlackBerry were that exact same success. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be critical or judge. No, Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I'm, just, okay. I'm, sim- I'm simply laying out a comparative landscape that versus this cohort in the turbulent seas, they increased in value substantially despite that. But yeah, I'm not trying to do a criticism of no, no. public capital. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it, it was a massive success for everybody involved and investors. And that capital was redeployed into the Canadian ecosystem, which is what we love about it. So Jim, maybe I want to move on to another topic. And it's something that you've been highly passionate and involved in over the last number of years is really being an advocate for the innovation economy in Canada. So one thing you've highlighted quite well has been the shift to the intangible economy and how that is something that's kind of lacking in Canada. In your opinion, Jim, what could be done to get us back on track? You know, what is holding us back that Canada lags a lot of other economies in terms of productivity and innovation? Well, Canada lags every other economy in productivity and innovation. We're last place in the OECD for the last 40 years and forecast to be last place for the next 40 years. And it's quite something because it's really a simple diagnosis. And there's just a remarkable stubbornness in the part of the traditional policy community in Canada to acknowledge the obvious deficit. What happened in the past 40 years, two things happened. And it's been a two-legged race for success, and we've only done one of the two legs. And that's the reason why we fail. And it's irrefutable, and every other successful innovation in the country does both legs. We did a commission in the 70s called the McDonald Commission that created the econometrics and the studying for liberalizing markets, labor, and capital that led to free trade in a tangible production economy that competes on a principle of Riccardi and comparative advantage. And the benefits are very clear. But during that same period of time, the percentage of the S&P 500 that was intangible went from 17% to 92%. This became the dominant form of wealth. And intangible works through marketplace frameworks on a principle of restriction. It works opposite of the tangible production economy. And to this day, we have absolutely no strategies nationally to participate properly in that because you're trying to enclose, you're trying to free trade agreements in intangible spread monopolies, not competition. And we have never had that second leg. And if you don't play the game through the legal frameworks, you don't teach it, it's been completely absent for the last 40 years of this transition. And thank goodness we have Alberta oil. Oil is 24% of Canada's exports because if we didn't have that, then we would be in a deeper hole as a country. And so our entrepreneurs succeed with the wind at their face from the domestic policy community, not with the wind at their back. So they're tremendously motivated. They're exceptional. They're as good as I've seen globally. Imagine what could happen if our policy community updated their understanding and created policies for the innovation economy, that second leg, as I use metaphorically. And 
it's just completely missing. And it should have been there 30 years ago, but the old adage, the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago. The second best time is now. If we finally get the policy frameworks for the intangible economy, that's what drives our innovation and productivity. That's what drives wealth. And these companies will soar if they get the wind at their back and at their face. And hopefully we're not too far behind anybody, even with that 30 years that we're lagging. The thing that I want to highlight also is the Canadian Council of Innovators. And maybe for you to give a bit of a background on that, why you started it. We here actually at TMX, TSX have been quite heavily involved the last number of years. We think it's a fantastic program. There's a lot of great advocacy work that's coming out of that group. But this was something that you founded back in 2015. And maybe explain the genesis of why you help get this organization rolling and kind of what you've been able to accomplish over the last eight years now of having that organization up and running. Sure. And the TMX has been a wonderful partner of CCI. And thank you for that. We had our summit last week with 120 plus CEOs. You've been supportive in many respects, including our governance training for board members. So thank you for that. And TMX is part of the answer. And so that's really great. When I met with the CEOs, I explained to them the nature of the frameworks and how tech firms globally, RIM was in 120 countries. This was a big part of what I did. I see what other countries do, and it's AWOL in Canada. And even worse in Canada, foreign tech speaks as if it's for domestic tech in Canada. So their government helps them grow in, say, U.S., and then our government also helps them grow in Canada. And there was no voice for our domestic innovators. Now, to their credit, they've rallied, they've engaged, and I would say some of their victories have been tactical, but very important, like stock option, tax treatment, immigration issues for talent, things like that. But they're still dealing with an overarching framework that doesn't understand. So they don't get the strategic engagement, they get the tactical engagement. And we take the tactical wins, but you really need the strategic engagement to really get the benefit out of those. But that's what CCI works on, the tactical issues, the strategic, there's sectoral, there's national, there's subnational issues. And it's about advancing their companies and what our policy community and our governments need to understand that they're the principal wealth drivers of productivity and prosperity in Canada. Their growth drives our GDP per capita, not foreign firms setting up branch plants. When they grow in Canada, they set up their home country's GDP per capita and wealth drivers. And so our policy community needs to understand what side their bread it's buttered on, and it's through these companies. And I've fundamentally said to them, this is a technical realm of engagement, and if you organize and share the load and speak collectively, you'll be more effective. And to their enormous credit, that's what they've done. And the other part of that that you know I hear quite often you advocating on behalf of is is IP in Canada, right? And having more of it reside here. I think something that you know I'm a bit curious about, and I think our audience is is you're a huge advocate for innovation intellectual property, right? So how do you see the future of innovation in a globalized world? You know, specifically as we're seeing emerging technologies like AI being developed, right? And and that ability to retain and control some of that IP. There's two forces that are extremely important to understand in the driving of intangibles over the last 35, 40 years. As I said, it's gone from 17% of the S&P 500 to 92% of its total $40 trillion value. That's where the game is. And so 
it works on a principle of enclosure. And our domestic policy strategies have been one of global philanthropy. When we invent something, we give it away to the world. And the rest of the world encloses what they in invent and happily take what Canada gives them with a bit of a chuckle. And so I think that both the knowledge-based economy and the data-driven economy work on controlling and owning your ideas, your intangible assets, your data. We have no strategies. We even had our federal government invite Google in to privatize the government of our largest city and control the data, not understanding that that undermines our own innovators. And that's symptomatic of not understanding how these forces work. So just understanding how they work, educating for them, and having strategies for them, just like every other country in the world has done, will allow us to start to get a bigger piece of the pie of what we invent. The second thing which is extraordinarily important is these technologies have now become much more dual use, where they used to reside almost exclusively in a realm of economics. Now they are cross-cutting both economic and non-economic. They go to state security, of secure technologies like the Huawei issues, about the mental health of children and social networking, and about vaccine sovereignty, about democratic integrity, and these kinds of things. So the consequence of inattention and the complexity of managing it properly has really increased in the last five or 10 years. So the imperative is there. There's a a younger cohort of policy leaders in the country. There's good CEOs. So I think we have to properly participate in this and develop an orthodoxy, develop a capacity, develop an understanding, or we can't pay for this country and the values beyond the economy you hold dear will continue to erode like human agency, mental health of our kids, democracy, security, these very, very important fundamental values we care so much about. Hopefully when people hear how you advocate on behalf of this and other kind of CEO tech leaders, hopefully that resonates with some people to understand of the importance of very particularly the intangible economy specifically. And as you mentioned, that stat should resonate with people when you say 93% is attributable to the intangible economy. That's a big number. <laughs> that's uh, from 17%. Yeah. That's a change in degree and rapidity unprecedented in humankind, in human history. And yet nothing in our policy architecture has changed in the past 30 years. I challenge those that do it. Tell me one thing besides pricing carbon a bit for natural capital. I can't think of anything new in the policy architecture and anything that would lead us to do better in the intangibles in that 30 years. We've got to put thinking caps on and, and update our thinking for this changed world. Yeah. The other thing, Jim, that's kind of been a little bit different of late, just kind of the tech environment in general has not been as easy raising capital the last couple of years as it's been maybe for the last decade in Canada. I know that you speak quite frequently with a lot of entrepreneurs, founders, both with your own investments as, as a mentor as well. How are you telling them to navigate the kind of current environment? It's a lot different, right? Maybe than it was three to four years ago when there's a lot of capital flowing. Now we've seen both public private markets that that isn't flowing as much as it used to. So how do you kind of help entrepreneurs and founders when you speak to them? I practice what I preach, windows open, windows close. And when windows are open, raise capital and build a strong balance sheet. 
And that's what we did with RIM back in the early 2000s. And then we had the dot-com bust. But we had a phenomenal balance sheet, and we were able to double down on product innovation through the two and a half years of the dot-com winter. And we came out of that, and for five years, we were the fastest-growing company in the world per Fortune magazine, 03 to 08. And so for these companies, it's the same fundamentals, which is raise the capital you need to get to cash flow break-even, control your destiny, good unit economics, and... Those that thought capital was always going to be there and always going to be cheap, I think that was a mistake. And it's a little bit like the Three Little Pigs and the Big Bad Wolf. And it's very, very hard to build that house of bricks when the threats are upon you. And so I just encourage people to, when the capital markets are open, raise capital, build good yield economics, get yourself to cash flow break even, control your destiny. And if you perform to that and you say, with jet fuel, I can take this to a new level, and you've made people money, they tend to give you more money. You reap what you sow. And if a company's in a difficult cash position now and they haven't performed or haven't planned for the nature of the shifts of the windows opening and closing, then it's going to be a bit painful right now because that's how capital markets work. It evolves according to a broad set of circumstances. So I don't think anything's changed in the way I thought 25 years ago in capitalizing RIM, and I don't think the fundamentals have changed. I'm going to shift gears just for a quick second here, and it's so topical these days because you're up on the big screen more than ever. I mean, you've probably <laughs> been on the big screen before, but not as a fictionalized person of yourself. Uh, you know, the Black Green movie came out. Any thoughts or opinions on it overall and what you'd share with the audience about what you thought about it, if you did sure, go and see it? Sure. Yeah. One is... The events, the characters, and the relationships bear no resemblance to what happened in real life. And I think by taking such a cartoonish fiction, it really yielded a, a commercial flop where the total box office receipts in the U.S. were less than a million and a half. And the second thing is that we've had considerable overtures from documentarians, both in the U.S. and in U.K., who uniformly have said this is an unbelievably important cultural and technology story that has yet to be told, and they marvel at the missed opportunity. So I think that's going to happen, and you know, a bit of a disappointment for me I, I, that it's going to be Americans and Brits that tell this historic Canadian story rather than Canadians. Hopefully... That might change and love to see the real story on Netflix or Crave or a Canadian content uh, production doing it one day. It's a great, amazing story that we tell entrepreneurs about all the time of this is one of the greatest Canadian technology stories ever, and it should be done justice. We were at the very birth of the global smartphone industry, and you look at the world today and you look at people walking down the street and... Few technologists have been that transformative to the world and how many other Canadian companies have had a global cultural impact. And yeah, successes and challenges. What a remarkable story that is for people to learn and to understand. Yeah, I think for a lot of us too, it's, you know, born out of Waterloo too, right? Which was not necessarily on the map and you kind of helped put it there, right? As one of the greatest technology hubs in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jim May, just a, a last kind of question, comment, I'd love to hear from you. So you've been around the tech landscape in Canada for quite a while. 
How have you seen it change over the last decade or two? And what are some of the positive elements going forward that you kind of make you very excited about what is happening today in the Canadian tech landscape? Well, I think the tech CEOs are as excellent as they've ever been, and that's tremendously good. I think every business is a technology business, so it's really permeates all aspects of society. And Canada has great inventors and great education and all of those kinds of things. So I'm very bullish on the future of tech. My principal concern from then versus now is back then we had Prime Minister Kretchen, it was Team Canada. He was all trying to help us sell our products. And I feel our governments today, the tech, foreign tech lobby has become much, much stronger in capturing, regulatory capture of our governments. And so I think that makes it more challenging for the, the tech CEOs in this changing world. So if we learn what side our bread is buttered on, which is through the growth of these companies, and we really embrace them, I think we have all the potential to grow them and start growing our productivity and GDP per capita again and pay for this beautiful country we all love. And I do thank the TMX for being always a constructive agent in, in my career, business career, right from our listing and the 97 right to today. So I, I want to thank you and your leadership team for that. We appreciate Jim. We appreciate your continued support through initiatives like the CCI. We need to do more advocacy work and we need to get ourselves to that 93% intangible number. If you don't remember anything from last 24 minutes today, I really hope you remember that one <laughs> statistic and you write to your MPs and talk about that overall. So Jim, thank you very much for being with us today. And we thank you to the listeners for listening to TMX Presents the podcast. For more insights from capital market leaders, please visit tmx.com slash POV. 